How is your inner child? What can you do to heal its hurts and help it grow? Welcome to episode 352 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Mary, Leslie, Valerie, Debbie, Alexandra, and Diana. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Mary, Leslie, Valerie, Debbie, Alexandra, and Diana for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I'm your host today. Joining me today is Becky. Welcome, Becky. Hi. How are things where you are? Spring-like today, which is wonderful. Yes. Heartwarming. Isn't it, though? You bring us a reading from Brene Brown. That's right. It's time. All of this pretending and performing, these coping mechanisms that you've developed to protect yourself from feeling inadequate and from getting hurt, has to go. Your armour is preventing you from growing into your gifts. I understand that you needed these protections when you were small, I understand that you believed your armour could help you secure all of the things you needed to feel worthy and lovable, but you're still searching and you're more lost than ever. Time is growing short. There are unexplored adventures ahead of you. You can't live the rest of your life worried about what other people think. The time has come to let go of who you think you're supposed to be and embrace who you are. And I think that really speaks to what we want to talk about today, doesn't it? You wrote to me and you said that you would be happy to share your journey, what inner child work means to you, and the various practices that have helped you move forward in your feelings about yourself and others. I have to admit that this is not something that I have done. I'm not familiar with this work. And so I really welcome your experience here in helping me and hopefully somebody who's listening to understand maybe a little better what it might mean for us. So briefly, what does inner child work mean for you? I think for me, it is most people are familiar with the concept of mind, body and spirit. This is an extension of that, really. The mind part of that being split into the intellect and the emotional self. And then thinking about the emotional self, it's there that my inner child interacts with me and impacts on my behavior, reactions, thoughts, and feelings. It's often that the feelings of my inner child that causes my triggers, <laughs> for sure. So yeah, that's in a nutshell-ish. I feel like I can connect there in the way that when things come up for me emotionally, I think you're right. In my experience, it is the emotional reactions that sometimes I 
connect back to things that happened as a child. One that, that led to or fed or something, one of my what we might call shortcomings or character defects, um, was the way in which my father acted, reacted when I wasn't doing something exactly the way he thought I should be doing it. His response often at least felt angry. I'm not sure that it was, but that's how I felt it. That has, I think, throughout my life made me more hesitant to admit that I don't know how to do something or to admit that I might have done it wrong. So that's where I connect right away to what you just said. If you could share a little bit of your story so we have a a picture of where you're coming from and then how that changed in recovery. Cool, yeah. I suppose we do need to start right at the very beginning. My father was a violent man. Mm -hmm. So even at the age of two, I was shouting down the stairs, Daddy, Daddy, don't hit Mummy. And (sighs) they separated. My mum found a new partner who was an alcoholic. He was abusive to me and my mum. I was an only child. I was quite lonely. I was definitely leaned upon to be the grown-up, comforting my mum when she was upset. Also, through a number of circumstances, ended up going to boarding school at the age of eight. So, coming from actually a poor family, going to quite a good school meant that even more I felt like an outsider, that I didn't fit in, and was always trying to mould myself to how others expected me to be. So fast forward to my adult life and I tended to bump along. Um, Highly successful work life, never really felt successful but looking back I really was. Never really felt good enough, tended to use sex to find love instead of finding love to find love. I had good friends but was exhausted being with other people and really didn't know what made me tick. I did everything that I thought I should do rather than everything I needed to do for me. I ended up with a partner who was quite unkind when he was angry. Again, you can see this carking straight back to my very early years for sure. We had a violent incident that we sort of brushed over and some years later, I had another argument where we both became violent. The horror that I felt after that incident, that was my moment. The moment that I knew I couldn't continue the way I was. The moment I realised my life was completely out of control and that I needed to make some steps to change myself. Whatever happened with him, I needed to change. So that's what was the point that I sought help. So that was, as we might say in, in 12-step recovery, that was, that was your bottom? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Just trying to put myself there, I feel like I would have no idea where to go. How did you reach out? Who did you reach out to? What resources did you think of at that point? I'd be very lucky to have spoken with a friend a couple of years before then who'd given me the name of a counsellor that I'd never reached out to, never sought help from. But at that moment, I did. So that 
that was how I got started. I've heard that similar story from a lot of people in the rooms that somebody told them, mm-hmm. recommended to them. Maybe they even went once or twice to a program or to a therapist and said, no, this is not what I need right now. And that's my story. I, I heard about Al-Anon years before I came to Al-Anon. And I thought, that's not for me. That's not what I need to do to, to get my problem fixed. But when I hit that bottom, when I had that gift of desperation, at least I had that. Oh, maybe I should try this. I don't know if that aligns with, with what happened with you or... Totally. Knowing that I could reach out somewhere was, I don't know what I would have done without it, because I certainly didn't have the language of recovery or of trauma, actually, to even understand what I was looking to resolve in myself, looking to heal. So finding, even later on, finding various things online about different 12-step programs and thinking, oh, there's just another thing wrong with me. (laughs) Yeah, another yes, thing yes. to deal with. I can't do this. Go away. <laughs> so it's been a journey for sure, but a relatively short one in the grand scheme of things. But yeah, yeah, I'm so grateful for that that information that I had in my pocket. At this point, our connection went bad and we switched to a different program where we had fewer problems, but you will still hear some audio issues. So I attend... Um, group counselling process for want of a better word for it where it was very immersive but it meant that I came through quite quickly with a new sense of who I was rather than spending week in week out talking to somebody it was done and dusted quite quickly but it was quite a full-on process that gave me enough inner peace that I was no longer scared that if I cracked open you know a tiny bit of emotion I would fall into an abyss and Mm. never climb out again and it also allowed me to then start getting curious about other traits and other areas where I should be I don't know, not should, never should, but where I could look at how I could be more at peace with who I am and less worried about what other people were, were actually, is the reality. So, yeah, yeah. So you went from that retreat. Somehow you find yourself in Elanon or a related program, yes? Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> what was that path? Because yeah. we all have our own path that we got ourselves to, to the 12 steps. Yeah, my path was via Codependence Anonymous. Huh. Yeah, I'd, I hadn't connected the stepdad who was an alcoholic mm-hmm. with my behaviours at all. It was only via the Codependence Anonymous meetings that I then found out about ACOA. and when I read everything there it was like oh I wish I'd known (laughs) I I think I'd had so many other things happen in my childhood that I hadn't equated that actually the 
alcoholic in my life really impacted in so many more ways than I ever understood. As I understand that program, they now say for children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families or something like that? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, recognizing, I guess, that the effect on the child can be very similar no matter whether the dysfunction comes from alcohol or something else. Yeah, yeah, I believe that to be very true, personally. I see that the, the counselling that I did have allowed me to feel less shame about my other traits and let go of the the shame and look at it with curiosity and with compassion for what caused me to behave that way instead of carrying the shame. I was still guilty of certain actions, but letting go of the shame of those and moving forwards from them was massive the way i understand the difference between shame and guilt in very simple terms when i feel shame i'm feeling that i am a bad person when i feel guilt i feel that i did a bad thing yeah particularly as a child i think it's very easy to accept shame if you have some authority figure in your life, whether it's a parent or somebody else who tells you you're bad, you believe them, right? Yeah. Because why wouldn't you? And and then you carry that with you. And that's, I think, one of the things that I have had to learn in recovery is that I'm not a bad person because of the things that I've done. I was a person acting out of hurts and fears and behaviors that I had learned earlier in my life that were no longer functional for me. Working the 12 steps, working step five, that scary one in which we admit to somebody else the exact nature of our wrongs, is one of the major things that helped me to free myself of those feelings of shame. I don't know if that's worked that way for you too. I cannot tell you how much shame and blame I put on myself for Mm -hmm. so much that was completely outside of my control. It's been a massive shift for me. I don't have to blame myself anymore i'm not the one who needs to carry the shame or the blame i can carry the guilt i do not have to carry that blame and shame that is a huge recovery step there what other ways has Mm. have you worked have you i I, the terminology here is difficult for me inner child work are you working with your inner child how do you express that yeah For me, it's about how to learn to communicate with her. Uh She's the one who's holding on to all of these fears and and behind all of the actions that I was taking, as Brenny Brown said, to keep myself safe Mm -hmm. and have continued to do those things throughout my adult life instead of realising it's time to release those, you know. So, of course, I've used to interact with her. 
but actually that the biggest thing is when I've been able to get deep with which does take time yeah the thing I sobbed over most was probably the thing that had been there the longest doing the wrong thing and my whole life has been in I can see it as the two-year-old frightened of her dad who's been hitting her mum scared of putting a foot wrong I can just see it but I sobbed and sobbed my heart out when I acknowledged that one that one was deep how do you get there yeah how do you get there actually for me it's believing in myself enough that it's okay for me to feel deep feelings Mm -hmm. because I was too scared to do that in the past so that's the first step that I needed to do before I did any of this digging was and know that those feelings will flow (laughs) you needed to feel safe in doing that yes yeah so I needed to to learn and I did that but by by the counseling learning that can feel big feelings and I will survive them right knowing that never coming out again I've really felt so afraid of feeling how I felt but once I understood that, what I've been able to do is the tools I use are, are quite s- simple, really. Either some sort of guided meditation where I spend some time in a safe place and then I open myself up and I've got my body that I'm sat in, but my spirit and then my intellect, my inner child. And I have a dialogue with my inner child. It's doing some writing, some journaling. So with my right hand, I'll ask a question. I'll say hello to my inner child. And then with my left hand, I'll write hi back. And then we have a conversation. And fascinating, actually, what comes out. And last time I did it, I haven't done this work for a little while. Yeah, last time she said to me, we all all very well she didn't use as many words but it was it's all very well so we sat and drew a picture it sounds a bit mad now a bit woo woo doesn't it but it was wonderful that released doing something for fun with no pressure on it being good or anything just heartwarming yeah and she's taught me just to have a bit more a bit more and to skip down the street occasionally so when not too many people looking. not only getting in in touch with the fears and the hurts that she has but also bringing back into your adult life some of the joys of childhood some of the what we would call childish behavior that can really yes. lift our spirit and you've said a word childish that has been quite triggering for me mm-hmm. and what it is a joy release of you know humanity actually a joyous release of just before i felt quite ashamed about being called childish yeah that's yeah. a learning for me i could i can see that i mean it, there is i think in our society there's a, a negative attitude about that sort of non-serious 
behavior, let's say, to, to avoid that word. Yes. Um, yeah, that's okay. Oh, things are so horrible. How can you just be skipping down the street? She helps me with the big feelings too but that's an important side of it the the fun side yeah yeah okay it sounds like you set aside some time to communicate with her how do you yes bring that back into your daily life how does that change the way in which you experience your daily life it changes it in two ways for me. The the first one is that or notice that I'm reacting to a situation or have reacted. I'm noticing so much more often through this recovery journey. Able to settle myself and reflect what caused it and that's very often when I'm getting in tune with her because it's normally an old, may well be I'm not worthy, <laughs> maybe I'm unlovable, um, not good enough, etc., etc. But all of those her experiences and she helps my intellect, actually, my, my intellectual self mm-hmm. accept that much more in that ebb and flow of okay I know know, instead of this whole thing of I shouldn't be feeling this way I know better it's like actually the kid in me doesn't know better yet she's not had enough experience of this she wasn't taught these things right as a child so she's learning we're bringing her along with that's one way in my daily life it comes in and then the other is definitely being more mindful about having fun and just dancing to one track in the kitchen, you know, turning mm. the radio up and just having a little dance. And I, I think we have a song choice later that is something that you dance to. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. The secrets one in particular is very, very boppy. So I've just found myself in the last two weeks, but I found myself playing it and turning it up and just having a little dance around i know i wrote a question here this is are you done and i know the answer to that has to be no because i don't think we're ever done with recovery work but what what i guess what continues to be i don't know how to put the question maybe you can give me an answer without me (laughs) figuring out the right question (laughs) i will i will (laughs) i think you're absolutely right i don't think anyone is ever done with the journey of discovery and recovery but I can't believe that I now but most often I'm in a place where I'm curious and I want to get to the bottom of it I want to discover what is it that I'm reacting to when I get the uh, get the little tummy in a certain way I really connect in with that now and I can't believe I'm almost pleased when I know in the past I'd have been ashamed enough of shame so I'm learning that I'm perfectly imperfect that's a really interesting observation yeah and I think I've seen that in myself as I've continued to work with my recovery tools that 
when something happens where I am acting in, you know, an old way, let us say, when I'm reacting rather than acting, perhaps, then that's an opportunity to say, oh, where did that come from? And to recognize that as a place where, yeah, maybe I need to do some inventory around it. Maybe I just need to recommit to asking my higher power to help me move past it, to have it removed in the language of the step. I love this perfectly imperfect. Yes. Sometimes that comes up in meetings like, I'm not perfect. And that's actually yes. better than okay. Interesting. I still struggle sometimes. Yeah. I'd like to come back to the question of if I'm listening to this podcast and I'm feeling like, oh, wow, I identify with some of that. Maybe I need to get in better touch with my inner child. Maybe there's a lot of fear and shame and blame and pain down there. And maybe you run into such a person in a meeting or something. What might you say or what helped you at the beginning that somebody, maybe somebody said to you? It felt forced for me to start with. It felt a bit inauthentic, like I was, yeah, pretending that I was doing it. But actually, nuggets of wisdom came through anyway. And the more, the more it revealed. So I would say, just try something that feels right to you, whether it's the journaling, whether it's as part of a, a quiet practice, mindful practice, that either of those will help draw out some real insights for you. And as I said before, I was just going to say that, as I said before, the other important thing is knowing that you're in touch with, you will work through those feelings you can feel your feelings I wouldn't have been able to do this work without knowing that being secure that's where I connect with that is is the 12 steps like how are these steps gonna Mm -hmm. help me with the fact that there's this alcoholic person in my life who won't stop drinking and that I can't make them stop. How does these? How do these steps fix that problem? That was the, the question that I had, and I think that's the, the attitude that kept me away from recovery for a long time. And I remember getting to step three after I had accepted that. Yeah, hey, this does actually seem to be helping. I'm not sure how. I'm not sure why, but it does seem to be helping. Getting to step three, which I had a real problem with, as I've I've said many times in the podcast, and where my sponsor told me to act as if told me to Mm -hmm. just do the actions. And what I knew was that there were all these other people in these meetings that had done these actions and got better. And I think that helped me to move through my skepticism where I really didn't, necessarily believe this was going to help me, but I could believe that it helped them. I think that is part of the real power of these programs of recovery is that we find ourselves 
with other people who have walked a very similar path and have found a way out of the woods or whatever metaphor we want to put on it. And, and even though I can't see that path will lead me out of my woods, it helps me to be willing to give it a try. I try to say that to try to say that when somebody is new in a meeting, something like that. This helped me. I didn't believe it would help me, but it helped me. And I hope that you will find a path like I did. Why don't you tell us about this song, Secrets, that you like to dance to? Oh, yes. Very randomly, actually. This girl is just full of attitude. And it so resonated with me, the fact that I spent so much of my time so much of my time carrying my childhood on my back. This is about just being open, authentically me. Doesn't mean that I tell everybody my, my history or my secret now, and I know who I am. This girl knows who she is. Yeah. So the song is by Mary Lambert. It's titled, as we said, Secrets. And I, I pulled some lyrics out from Yay Google. They tell us from the time we're young to hide the things that we don't like about ourselves inside ourselves. I know I'm not the only one who spent so long attempting to be someone else. Well, I'm over it. And I think that's... <laughs> and a, it's fantastic. It's a beautiful expression. It absolutely is. I totally understand why you picked it. In this section of the podcast, we talk about how recovery is working in our lives today. Oh, my life is very quiet right now. Many Zoom meetings, very few real-life meetings. Yeah. I didn't miss people to start with, but I do now. I'm using accept the situation that I'm in. I cannot change it. I can't connect. Whether it's Zoom and Skype or whether it's other things, I can't control any of this stuff. Yeah. And I'm using that every day, actually, releasing of control and let my higher power decide the outcome. I can take the good action for any outcome. Definitely. I echo that. Acceptance has been just a huge part of survival of life in the last year. It is just, it's been almost a year for us here in the U S that life turned upside down. Being able to just live in, live with the new ways of doing, of being expectations are a thing that, that I just try not to have. I am expecting that I will actually get my first shot of my vaccination next week, maybe this week by the time the podcast is published. I don't know yet how that's going to change things for me. A little less anxiety about going out eventually. For a while, I was just saying my doctor's office had said that they will contact me when vaccinations are available. I was like, okay, acceptance. And then I started hearing that people were finding vaccinations in in other venues. And 
I decided I, I should do that. This is a thing that I can do, right? The serenity prayer, the courage to change the things I can. I can't change when my doctor's practice has vaccine available and pulls my name out of their hat or whatever, however they're doing it. I got an email recently said, hey, we got a thousand vaccines available for people over 65 now this week. I'm like, a thousand, that's a drop in the bucket. So I did. I, I went online and I spent some time looking for a place. I knew that this particular pharmacy chain was doing vaccinations. Other people had expressed success. And I eventually got an appointment uh, about two weeks out from when I was trying to make it. And in a town that's an hour away from where I live. But then I hear from people who are driving further than that. Back to acceptance. <laughs> okay. I found a thing I could change. I changed it. And I have yes. to accept the outcome that came from that. I'm not going to drive yeah. five minutes to the place where they're doing vaccinations near my house. I'm going to drive an hour and 15 minutes to a place where they're doing vaccinations because I can get it there. So, yeah, using that particular principle of recovery. The other thing that you know, and as regular listeners know, happened is that my father died recently. And sometimes I find myself feeling like I'm not feeling anything. Shouldn't I be just crying all the time or something? But I know, as I said in, in the last episode, it comes and goes. It will come and it will go. I will see something that reminds me of him. My wife expressed recently, she said she heard about something on the radio and she said, oh, my father-in-law would love that. And then she thought, but he can't anymore. I will get those moments and I will feel them when they come. Oh, sure. But I, I also need to continue living my life. I, I, I need to be able to dance to the song when the song comes. We were trying to pick some music for the memorial service that we are planning. And my father really liked swing and and jazz. So we were playing some stuff and this one song came out. I was like, I need to dance. I can just see him. I can see him dancing to this. And I need to do that. So I really believe that the tools that I learned in recovering from the effects of somebody else's drinking on my life helped me to survive, helped me to live in the sort of inevitable events that come along, whether it's COVID or the death of a parent. I have tools for living, and it sounds like you do too. So thank you. Thank you. We also got a couple of shares from Alina, one about Responsibility and Authority, which is one of the concept episodes, and one on boundaries. Hi, this is Alina. I just wanted to share on, I think it was ep episode 103 on boundaries. I always like this topic about boundaries. It's always something that I struggle with. It's not so much setting the boundary. It's like just holding onto it and keeping it. Ultimatum just sounds so negative and painful for me. Holding a boundary, I know that I'm doing it to take care of myself. To me, an ultimatum is giving someone, you need to do this or else type of communication. But with a boundary, I feel like it's easier for me to set them rather than hold on to them. And most of the time, what works for me is when I set a boundary, I know that I'm taking care of myself and 
then I focus on self-care after that. I don't really want to put myself into a place where I get hurt. I definitely don't want to put a wall up or anything like that. And I definitely don't want to be controlling. So I, those are the things that I try and think about too when I set a boundary. I know that during this podcast, there was some an email or something from a listener and you guys had read about it. And I know that with my qualifier, it's hard sometimes to reinforce these boundaries. I always want to, okay, maybe I can do this this time or whatever. And I know that I end up having some disappointments later. So I just have to remind myself of that. And I know that some of the questions in the overview were, how have you handled the negativity from your addict and anxiety and heartbreak of not knowing if the relationship will ever be restored? What has it looked like for you to practice loving detachment with an intimate partner through a separation or a divorce? And what is the next right thing to do once a boundary has been communicated? Right now I'm dealing with, I guess with those questions, one of my qualifiers had a relapse after almost two years And this was a few weeks ago. So we're still new into the relapse part of it. And it is hard to, you know, when they're clean and sober, it's easier to set that boundary and just keep going on with my life and not really, you know, focus too much on it. I just set it and, and be done with it. And, but I don't know, it seemed like with the relapse, when I set the boundary, I'm like, questioning did I do the right thing maybe I need to reassess these boundaries but I know that I can't do that and it's just hard you know but I just have to realize I know that he's not in a program and usually after relapse he wants to hit meetings really hard and go quite a bit which is understandable but this time there's like nothing and I know that they always say if you're not in recovery, you're in relapse. And I think that just seems like it's, I never understood that really, but now it's like becoming easier to understand and think about it in that terms. But I know that it's not my place. It's not my responsibility. I can continue my program and my qualifier knows that. And I think that he sees that, but I think that for him, he thinks that the gym and all these other things are going to help. And that might be the case or not, but that's not for me to decide. And he has his higher power and I have mine. And I have my program and I'm grateful for that. I guess as far as accepting certain behaviors, it's really hard. I know that's part of having boundaries is to help you get through these things. But anyway, I really like this topic about boundaries. I think it's um, always good, and I know that there's been several episodes about it, but it's. I think it's always a good one. I'm glad I got to share today, and I hope you guys have a good day. Thanks. I wanted to share on episode um, 102, which was on responsibility and authority. When I heard this podcast, it was asking about, do you take responsibility for your own actions or take on the responsibility for the way others um, live their lives? I think in the beginning, before I came into Al-Anon, maybe I felt being the daughter of an alcoholic growing up, even though I wasn't, I think I was involved in that probably up until I was eight. 
and then my parents divorced and then it was like visitation until I was 12. And then after 12, I really didn't have any contact with, with my dad, but I know it still affected me now that I look back on it. Growing up, I just wanted to like not make anybody upset, not upset my mom, be the older sister, take care of things, not really complain, even though that was the only life that I knew at the time. And as I got older, I could see my other friends hanging out with other friends and getting to go out and doing fun things. And I had a little bit more of restricted upbringing only because my mom was working and my grandparents stepped in a little bit to help out. But basically it was just like studying and reading and doing my best in school, taking care of my sister, coming straight home after school, not really involved in any like extracurricular activities. And now that I look back on it, I wish I would have had the opportunity. And I don't know, I guess just financially and as far as time goes, it wasn't really there. But I did take on a lot of responsibility for my mom and what she had to do as far as my sister too, making sure that she had everything she needed and everything like that. Now that I flash forward now coming into Al-Anon, it is hard for me to not take on other people's responsibilities because I don't know, I just have this anxiety about it sometimes, but I have learned to to deal with it a lot better. As far as my own actions, I think that I'm pretty good at taking responsibility for that. I definitely always want to do the right thing and not make a mistake. And if I do, I've learned that I can correct it and move on and not hold on to it. Sometimes it's a little hard depending on what it is, if it's work involved or something like that. Sometimes it is hard in my position at work too, to not take on other people's um, responsibilities only because I'm in a supervisor role and my managers look on me to make sure these things get done. Sometimes I feel like I don't have a lot of support system with my work. And instead of getting frustrated and overwhelmed and all that, I just do it myself. And I know that's not the right thing to do. And I try to slow down and teach others the right, you know, way or just guide them in a direction. I've noticed probably within the last six or seven months, I've been really good at that. At first, it, it did give me a lot of anxiety just to let things go and just say, here, this is what needs to be done and delegate it out. But I, like it said, I can't play God. And I know that everyone has a higher power that works for them. So as far as my personal life goes with one of my qualifiers, it's been really hard the last few days, I would say. And I don't know if it's my hormones going or whatever is going on, but the last three days I've seen and I don't know if they're going through something. That's all I can really think of. I'm not really taking it personal or anything like that, which is good. But I just see it's the weekend and there's more drinking involved and there's more. I can just see it. It's just more visible and the way that they act and the way that they display themselves. It makes me feel uncomfortable. And I've been getting really emotional about it lately, but I know that that doesn't define me. That doesn't define the person. It's just the disease. And it's really just been difficult. And I know I'm going to go through my times where I'm going to have some challenging moments emotionally. And uh, I just have to like, hold on 
to my program a little bit more and just reach out a little bit more. So that's why I'm sharing about that. And I just have to pray about it. I just have to hope that, have hope and and faith that things are going to be okay. And anyways, that's all I really have today. But you guys have a good day. Thank you. Thank you, Alina. We welcome your thoughts. You can join our conversation. Please leave us a voicemail or send us an email with your feedback or your questions. You can call and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. You can call right now, 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or an email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of inner child work. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. Our website is therecovery.show, where we have all the information about the show, including notes for each episode. So you could go to therecovery.show slash 352 for this episode, videos for the music, and so on. I'll take a little break before... Looking at what we got in the mail. First of all, I want to thank everybody so much who has sent sympathy and condolences on the death of my father. Even if I didn't acknowledge you directly, please know that your words were meaningful to me. Terry sent a poem by the Irish poet John O'Donohue. This is the time to be slow, lie low to the wall until the bitter weather passes. Try as best you can not to let the wire brush of doubt scrape from your heart all sense of yourself and your hesitant light. If you remain generous, time will come good, and you will find your feet again on the fresh pastures of promise where the air will be kind and blushed with beginning. Thanks, Terry. Paula wrote, Thank you for letting us know of your father's death. Over the last three years I've been listening to this podcast, I've heard your care and love of your parents as you shared and generously allowed your own recovery to join with all of ours. I have learned so much through each episode as I've felt gently challenged to keep the focus on myself and my own recovery. When my daughter died, I was so glad I had found the rooms of Al-Anon only the year before. Thankfully, I, too, was able to allow those upwellings of grief, as you describe it, with people who had loved her, too. Unfortunately, my life partner, a sober alcoholic who had never met her, found my grief too difficult as he was unable to allow the griefs of his own life or look for support with them. He was not able to accompany me when the waves of raw grief and loss swept over me. Her death brought up so much family pain that could not be allowed among my siblings also. All of us had grown up in an alcoholic home. Thankfully, I kept coming back to Al-Anon and found in the rooms the love, understanding, and peace that I needed so much. Al-Anon kept me floating at a time when I just wanted to let go of life one meeting at a time. Learning to use the tools of the program brought me into a loving and accepting environment I could hold on to a day and sometimes a minute at a time. Sadly, the accumulated grief between me and my partner and some serious dry drunk episodes and abusive behavior led to emotional, mental, and physical breakdown for me, but after many years of waiting for him to seek help, I found the courage to leave the marriage and to apply for a divorce. 
Today, I can allow the griefs of my life and accept them as part of my life. In accepting the waves of raw grief to wash over me, I was able to feel a growing new solidity that stayed as I allowed the transformation and wisdom a day at a time. As I look back now, I can recognize that time of learning and richness during which I learned to embrace my feelings in order to continue forward into wholeness and recovery. Today, I accept the sorrows of my life as well as the blessings and joys. I accept that I have a broken heart, but that it is also a heart that is open to my life today. I like the quote in one of the daily readers which says, Worry never robs tomorrow of its sorrows. After years of fear, anxiety, and grief, years of trying to change what I was powerless over or enduring the unacceptable behavior of others, I try to live present to whatever each day will bring, and I am often surprised and amazed by the gifts that come my way. I am embarking on the adventure of third age now, needing to find a home again and face into the time that will be given to me with realistic expectations and filled with wonder still holding my dreams. I'm grateful for friends and family and Elanon who loved me through it all and never abandoned me. May you be upheld, Spencer, in your faith and continuing recovery through these sad days and know that even at times of great grief, there are moments of great love and joy. May your nurturing of the seeds sown by your father console and comfort you as you move forward in your own life with family and friends. Thank you for the seeds you also sow with your work on The Recovery Show. Thank you. Thank you, Paula, for sharing that experience, strength, and hope that you express. Thank you. Amanda shared about this same episode, 351, Feeling My Feelings. I want to tell you that just a few days ago, a friend's dad passed away. And because he also struggled with alcoholism and being in and out of hospitals often, my friend hadn't gone back in time to see him before he passed. I shared the episode with him, and he was really grateful. Your experience, strength, and hope has already helped so many out there. Thank you, Amanda, for just sending that note and letting me know that my words may have helped one other person. That's all I need. That's all I ask. Robin writes with a question about a situation and a topic idea. I'm new to your show and have recently received the gift of despair and found you guys. Thank you for being out there. I've listened to several shows now. The If I'm Not the Solution was great and gave me a new perspective to operate from. Last night, I was listening to number 350 and thought I need to email and ask where to hear some of what I desperately need to hear. I've heard enough to know I'm not helping by participating in this crazy making, but I don't know how to disconnect in a supportive way. We are now in our 50s, and the entire family has always known my sister drank too much for decades. We've danced around it. She always managed to work and keep a roof over her head, so we pretended it wasn't an issue. She has never really been part of family functions at holidays, etc., and has been distanced from the core of family until now. She is slipping into a horrible abyss. We get multiple crisis calls a day. I do not feel I'm helping her, and I'm being emotionally drained, and she says we make her feel like shit. She went through inpatient treatment eight years or so ago, but didn't stay sober long after leaving sober housing. With COVID, her alcohol abuse has skyrocketed as well, and the crazy-making train of drunk and continuous phone calls. This is what I'm trying to get a handle on. I'm looking for answers on how people have managed to distance themselves with love and healthier boundaries. 
My other sister and I take the calls, but get beat up in them while trying to be rational with a person that just seems to be losing it. We both want off the crazy train, but don't know how other than to cut all ties. I worry that she will take that as more emotional abandonment and will get worse. Let me preface this by saying she was first admitted to the hospital because her legs would not work on Labor Day weekend. Since that time, she has been admitted six times with ambulance rides for each. One trip was two weeks. She is killing herself and us as we watch. It's a show I want to run away from and never look back. Our mother has now blocked my sister, which has only amped up the phone calls we get with her anger and dismay. My mother cannot physically take the emotional abuse and tirades anymore. I had no idea how much mom dealt with until now that I get the calls. Today I've had seven calls and got only the crazy train of living in the past and how her mother blocked her. Hopefully this is more than enough to give you guys something to talk about. I'm super open to resources and have made the commitment to myself to start taking care of me. Thanks for all you do, and looking forward to any pods you might suggest or other resources. Respectfully, Robin, the big sister. And perhaps connected on a similar topic, Diane writes, Is there a show dealing with people you have to be around who are intentionally, deliberately mean? Both Robin and Diane are, are dealing with unreasonable people, sounds like for sure. The tools that I think the program gives us for these situations are... Boundaries and detachment. Boundaries on how much you will interact with a person. Boundaries on whether you answer the phone or not when your sister calls. Seven calls in a day is not reasonable, especially when they're just abusive. Think about how many calls you're willing to accept. And think about what you do when that boundary is exceeded. Think about when you're willing to take a call and when you're just going to let it go to voicemail. I don't know. This is my opinion. This is only my opinion may or may not be the truth, but it feels to me like actually taking those phone calls and listening to her rant is a form of enabling of that behavior. It's acceptance of that behavior. And I think again, opinion, as long as you keep doing that, she'll keep calling. Now, her behavior when your mother blocked her indicates she's not going to give up. So setting a boundary and holding it, I think, is a key to your peace of mind. And that's what's important here for you. Yeah. And detachment is the other thing that you ask about. That's our topic, detachment with love. We have a number of episodes on that. I don't have the numbers right away. If you go to the recovery.show, there is um, a search box if you're on a computer, if you're on a phone or a tablet, it's probably easiest to go to the menu at the top. You tap on it, and there's a search page where you can type in detachment and find a bunch of episodes where we talk about detachment. Detachment allows you to have your life while not completely removing yourself from the other person's life. It's not an easy thing to do. It took me quite a while in the program to really understand detachment with love. The only thing I understood at the beginning was detachment with anger, or as I like to refer to it, middle finger detachment. But as I continued to work the program, as I continued to go to meetings, as I continued to hear other people's experience, strength and hope, as I continued to read the literature, as I started to accept into my life those tools and principles that are expressed in our program. I was able to find a place where I could love my alcoholic 
but detach myself from the actions that were brought about by her disease. It's not easy, but it was, I think, the only way to sanity and serenity for me. Go look up those topics, boundaries and attachment. We talk about them a lot, and I hope that you will find some recovery there. Sheila left us a voicemail in response to the episode titled, It's Not Your Fault. Hi, Spencer. My name is Sheila. This is my first time sharing at your podcast. I am listening to the episode right now, It's Not Your Fault, and I'm really glad that this episode didn't come out like a year ago when I first started listening. I have been to Al-Anon meetings over the last, I would say, decade or so, but never fully committed to the program, mostly because by coming to Al-Anon, I realized I had my own addiction issues. I was using drugs and alcohol to cope with my feelings of overwhelm around my sister's addiction. One of the things that I've been doing is using your podcast as my Al-Anon program because with the pandemic and my own steps that I'm doing in my program for my own addiction, I just felt like I just didn't have enough time to also commit to going to Al-Anon meetings as well. It just felt like I'm stretched thin as a mom and I've been using your podcast as a way to stay in the message of what is my responsibility and what do I need to be aware of versus what is outside of my control when it comes to other people. I just paused the episode like, it's not your fault is so intense that I can't listen to it all the way through. I feel like it is the core issue of my whole life. My little sister died almost four years ago from an overdose of heroin. That tragedy has just been like haunting me because I don't want her to be gone. I don't want her to be out of my life and trying to find peace with a world where your loved one dies of their addiction. It's very challenging. So one of the things that I've been working through as a part of my step work and just going to therapy and just general coping is that it's not my fault that she died. But everything about this episode is just so raw for me because I felt so responsible for her all throughout our lives. One of the other things that came up in your episode was someone wanting to know about reparenting and inner child work. And I've found that I've really needed to do that work as a part of my healing because my parents split up when I was four and my younger sister was two. That kind of trauma so young, I realized I became, in my mind, responsible for my little sister. I became her mother at that time. I felt like I had to be the mother that both of us didn't have in that moment. I've carried that over-responsibility with me all throughout my life 
even though I went to Al-Anon meetings and I learned the phrases loving detachment and I applied some of it in my life in some ways when it came to my sister, when she was actively in her addiction, but in my soul, in my heart, I have never, ever been able to figure out how to unwind the tentacles of guilt. I just paused it. when There was a woman who had written an article, and Eric is reading it aloud, and it's, Is Your Guilt True or False? And it just talked about how people who are codependent have this unhealthy... My, my therapist calls it my neurological pathways are just so used to feeling responsible for other people's feelings, other people's choices, always wanting to come up with a way to make it better, heal something, fix something. I was so deep on that path of martyrdom managing throughout my life that the only thing that would turn off that feeling of constant mental strategizing was my own use of drugs and alcohol. Like for me, I know that it's like the recovery show, although it is based in the experiences within Al-Anon, there are so many people like myself who feel like the principles of Al-Anon and the principles of the 12 steps as it relates to drugs and alcohol are the same. It's like, I'm powerless over alcohol and people and other people's reactions, other people's behavior. And so for me, it's been like a parallel journey, but this is the first time I've ever really shared with the focus on my own grief and my own loss of someone that was in my heart. The greatest responsibility I had on this earth was to my little sister and to know that's false, that it wasn't my fault is really big. And, you know, I've needed this podcast to be there for me as I become ready to believe that because I don't know. I don't know if you have episodes on grief, episodes about losing the person, but I lived in fear of her death for years before she died. I would have nightmares where I was chasing her and trying to stop her, and I was very afraid that she would die. And so when it happened, I feel like I didn't even really feel it at the time. I just... I went into managing mode. Oh, whoop, we got to do the funeral. Oh, she died. Okay. I knew it was coming. And there were so many logistics that had to be handled. And because both of my parents were brutalized in a really visceral way at the time of her death, it ended up falling to me to do that. This is like the longest share ever, but I just, I haven't really searched through your past archive of episodes. I listened to the first of your episodes I ever listened to. I had done a search on grief and I heard a woman share about losing someone and how that really impacted her. But if you have any other episodes to point to about finding peace and serenity, even when you did lose that person that you love so much, I would appreciate that. I'm sitting outside my home looking out at the snow and it's peaceful and I feel like I've been brooding on this, it's not your fault concept 
I'm not even through the episode. I have to listen to it in five to 10 minute chunks because it's so emotional for me because that feeling of being responsible is so deep, but I feel it melting away little by little. And I'm so grateful to your episode to help me along that path. Thank you. Sheila, I just want to say thank you for that that really powerful share. You ask about episodes about grief. The only one that pops up when I do a search for the word grief is episode number 293 with Lynn, which is titled Grief Can Be a Wonderful Thing. And she talks in there about her grief over a friend whose death was at least related to alcohol. So you might check that one out. But it it is a great topic. I would love to have an episode in conversation with somebody who has, I don't know, come to terms with, worked through is not the right word either, grief over the death of an alcoholic loved one. Thank you. A couple anonymous listeners wrote, one asks, I started listening to your podcast today and have gotten through the first four episodes, and I'm wondering if you can explain the difference between boundaries and tolerating a behavior. How do you choose which to use? If, for example, I'm at a restaurant with a friend who I have a long history with, but she always abuses waitstaff and embarrasses me, am I supposed to say, that's just who she is? Or, if you don't stop doing that, I won't go out with you anymore. Similarly, people who are caring but controlling should we acknowledge this personality trait and avoid triggering it or call them on it. I've spent a lot of years avoiding conflict and people who leave me feeling drained or stressed, and I'm trying to work out when and how to implement boundaries or just let it go. Those are both really good examples. So the friend in the restaurant, I think what I would ask, it's always a balanced question, right, for me. I would ask, how much do I value the time I spend with this person? What kind of time do I want to spend with this person? Are there other ways to spend time with them than being in a restaurant where they engage in behavior that makes me uncomfortable? Or is the time I spend with them worth putting up with that behavior? That, for me, is the balance. That's where the boundary is. And if, in fact, the behavior bothers you more than the benefit you get from the interaction, maybe there's some other way you can spend time together. Maybe you can go to a coffee shop where you get your drink, your pastry, whatever it is at the counter, and then you go sit down and there's no wait staff for her to abuse. So there are possibilities. Maybe you can go for a walk together instead of a meal. I don't know. But the real question for me is always, what is the benefit that I get from being with this person? How much do I enjoy her company? Balanced with how much does it bother me? in these situations? And is it worth it? That's a question that I would ask. People who are caring but controlling. I think for me, I'm also somewhat conflict avoidant. I think the what Eric likes to call neutral responses can be very helpful there. These are things like, I'll have to ponder that one. Thank you for your information. You could be right. I never thought of it that way. That's food for thought. I hear what you're saying. So things like that, where you're not agreeing, you're not disagreeing, maybe can be helpful. Depending on the situation, you might have to break off the interaction. Say, thanks for your input. I I really need to go now, or something like that. I don't know. 
it's, as I say, it's a balance. The other approach for those of us who are maybe less conflict avoidant is to be upfront and say, I appreciate that you care about me. And I understand that by giving advice, by telling me what I ought to do, you're showing that care, but I prefer to make up my own mind about things and make my own decisions. So thanks for your input. Thanks for your caring. Those are, those are some things that I think of now. Another listener wrote, Hey, Spencer, thank you for your time to put together the podcast and your service to the recovery of all of us dealing with alcoholism. It is very much appreciated. Just a little background. The alcoholic in my life is my wife. We've been married for 18 years, and we have a daughter who will be a senior in high school next year. My wife has been an active alcoholic for probably about five years now. She's been sober for a period of that time and is currently sober now and in outpatient rehab via Zoom since her relapse about two weeks ago. This is her third time going through rehab and her second relapse since the first rehab. One of the things that I'm really struggling with is her shame that keeps her from being prideful in her recovery. That makes her want to keep it more anonymous. It creates this bubble where my daughter and I feel like we have to keep it to ourselves since it is her story and she doesn't want people to know. It hinders my recovery to lean on friends that love and support us and that I need advice and guidance from because I don't want to upset her by people knowing. My own brother, who is working through his son's recovery, does not even know about these relapses. I'm committed to our marriage and support her recovery, but need to find a way for me to move forward, not in secret. Any advice or a podcast episode I should listen to for guidance. Thanks so much. I guess first I will say I connect with the multiple relapses. That was definitely part of my wife's story. I went from nobody knows, I don't want to tell anybody anything, which was my thing, to being embedded and connected in my Al-Anon groups where I had a place that I could talk to people. So that's one one bit of advice, I think, is connect with one or more groups of Al-Anons where you can talk about how you're feeling. You can find somebody that maybe you can have longer phone calls with because definitely a meeting is not the place where we dump out our life in a long share, but finding somebody who your wife doesn't know and who really understands the anonymity and confidentiality concepts, I think could be very helpful. Some other thoughts that I have here. The program tells me that I am not responsible for other people's emotions and attitudes. Okay, I'm not responsible for what my wife feels. I'm not responsible for what my kids feel. I am responsible for my own attitudes and actions, and I am responsible for taking care of myself and my recovery. And if taking care of myself and my recovery requires that I don't bottle up what's happening, that I have at least somebody, maybe somebody's, that I can talk to, I need to do that. You can't help her if you're sick. Put on your own oxygen mask first, as they say. My sponsor, back early in the program, gave me a really helpful definition of enabling, which is getting between someone and the consequences of their actions. And it really helped me to let my wife take the consequences of her drinking without trying to intervene. Because I sincerely believe that she wasn't able to get sober for herself until I got out of the way, until I stopped trying to make her feel better. 
And the third thought here, you might be surprised how much other people already know. How many people have seen the relapse, even though you didn't say anything about it. I understand that with COVID and with isolating, it's a lot easier to hide these things, for sure. My wife has expressed the opinion that while recovery might be anonymous, relapse is frequently not. Yeah, like I said, in other words, relapse can make itself obvious to those who are around the alcoholic, and and I think it's definitely true. So even though you're trying to hide it, the people that you're trying to hide it from might actually already be aware of it. Don't know. Just some random thoughts. No advice because, like I say, what worked for me may or may not work for you. Brian says, I'm writing with a troubling circumstance in my own family seeking some direction or advice. I have an older sister who is having a rough time of it. She has an adult son who is displaying the symptoms of alcoholism and mental illness. She is expressing some feelings of despair at not being able to continue helping him, coming to grips with powerlessness over the disease. Another fact that may be relevant is that she is a licensed practicing counselor. As someone already in the helping profession, I sense that she struggles with not being able to solve these situations herself. As an alcoholic myself, I have tried to reach out to my nephew and help all I can. Recently, his mental health has been more a concern than his drinking. He has been sober a year or so, but is struggling with powerful delusions. He lost his position of responsibility at a sober house and is close to being homeless. I spoke with my own sponsor about this situation, and we came to the idea of reaching out to someone in the Al-Anon Fellowship for guidance or some assistance with resources for my sister to find a sponsor in Al-Anon, although I'm not sure she's quite at the point of being able-slash-willing to accept the help. I've shared your podcast with her previously. Can you think of a particular episode of the podcast, maybe, or some other speaker in Al-Anon you've heard who might be particularly helpful for her at this juncture? She and I have recently been sharing with one another about steps two and three, and she has expressed her pain around faith and being restored to sanity and the surrender we all face of relinquishing our disbelief or letting go of the powerful parental instinct to protect even our adult children. My heart hurts for her, and as an alcoholic, I find myself feeling ill-equipped to be of help to her or to offer the help that she is in need of, perhaps. I'm following suggestions, working my own program in this situation, and trusting in the guidance of my higher power. So I'm going to try to respond with my own experience, strength, and help and and try to step away from advice again. You write, although I'm not sure she is quite at the point of being willing to accept the help. I say, yes, I could not force anyone into recovery that they weren't ready for. Whether it was AA recovery, Al-Anon recovery, I brought a number of relatives and friends to Al-Anon, and some of them stayed and some of them didn't. And I can't make them stay, for sure. I can only share my own experience and express my hope for recovery for them. I can only help when help is requested, and I need to stay within the boundaries of what it asked for. I can say, can I help you with that? Or how can I help you with that? But I have to accept no or no thank you, if that is the answer. So that's one thing. You also write, she and I have recently been sharing with one another about steps two and three. And I think it's wonderful that you can have these conversations. I think this is a a perfect example of you sharing your experience, strength, and hope with her. And for me, this is the essence of our recovery program, sharing with each other that we might both improve our understanding, that we might find strength in each other, that we might find hope from each other. But the bottom line here is I can't shape anyone else's recovery path. I I can't shape my wife's recovery path. I can't shape... The recovery path of the other people who were affected by her drinking, like my children. I can only share what I found without expectation that 
he or she will connect with or pick up any of it. But even just that sharing can be of help. Yeah. Emily wrote, Hello, I'm new to your podcast and have listened to a few episodes. I'm married to an alcoholic. Six and a half years ago, things came to a head with his drinking. I packed up our three children and left him. We were separated for six months. I found out about codependence from a counselor and read Codependent No More. My husband went to AA and a substance abuse counselor. He stopped drinking and we got back together. Everything was great for six and a half years. I thought we had beat it. Our marriage was better than ever. Over the holidays, he relapsed. I relapsed probably long before that. We had become complacent. But now I find myself dealing with my first experience of relapse. I've started listening to self-help books again. I'm looking for an Al-Anon group, but I would love some resources on intimacy. That is the biggest loss I've felt since his relapse. I had fully put my trust in him. I thought we were open and honest with each other at last. And then he started lying and hiding things from me again. How does one detach and yet remain intimate physically and emotionally? Do you have an episode about this? At this point, I'm staying with him and trying to work on me, but how do you stay with someone you don't feel like you can trust and make it work? Thanks for all you do, Emily. I remember, as I said earlier, my my wife had multiple relapses throughout her time finding recovery through those years. The biggest one for me was after eight months of sobriety. Because, yeah, I thought we had beat it. I thought we were doing better. And then I discovered the relapse some number of weeks after she had actually relapsed. And I was devastated. But I found support in the program. I found support in the love of a higher power and the people in the program and the the principles and the work of the program that enabled me to keep going. It took a long time to rebuild trust that had been broken through the drinking years. I, I won't lie about that. It took a long time. And I know I have spoken of that in the podcast. I can't give you, I think, specific episodes. I would recommend, there's an episode titled Detachment with Love. I think that is that one might help because you, you ask about that. Intimacy, the Al-Anon has published a book with readings on intimacy, you might find that helpful. Uh, we've had a couple of uh, episodes about intimacy, uh, at least one, sharing about intimacy in alcoholic relationships. You might need to step back a little bit. I strongly suggest, as I did to a previous caller, finding an LN group, a meeting that you can start to develop, trusting relationships with people who are you're not emotionally involved with so that you have more than one place to put your feet. That's what I got. Eric sent us a flyer for the 2021 Connecticut Elanon convention, which is on March 19th and 20th. I will share it in the show notes at least until March 20th, at which point it won't be relevant anymore at the recovery.show slash 352. Suzanne writes about episode 236, fear of financial insecurity. I've recently discovered your show. Episode 236 is so helpful. I struggle tremendously with fear regarding my partner's financial irresponsibility. The reason I joined Al-Anon was due to his food, gambling, and spending habits slash addictions. You've encouraged me to consider what he might be feeling, even though he doesn't discuss it. 
We listen to Dave Ramsey all the time, but he refuses to go on a budget or implement any of the steps, etc. I've worked through my anger, forgiveness, and other issues post-financial infidelity and massive lies that brought the sheriff to the door with unexpected foreclosure papers. I had to separate our finances for self-protection. He had depleted all of our savings, 401k, and had our home in foreclosure. I was blindsided by it all. I'm active in recovery, 12-step programs, striving to find serenity, and I've come to understand God is my source, not this man. I have nearly three years sobriety now. He is currently in bankruptcy, and I'm trying to support him through it. I believe God has asked me to stay until the end of the bankruptcy. We've been together 22 years, and I'm trying to figure out if I need to just walk away from his addictions. Meanwhile, any and all tools are helpful. Thank you very much for your podcasts. I'm sure to listen to more of them. I'm going to go back to detachment and boundaries. It seems like you're putting up pretty good boundaries and detaching financially, at least. Um, take care of yourself, and it sounds like you, you are taking care of yourself now that you've had that wake up, that on very unpleasant wake up. Thanks for writing. Neely responds to episode 347, if I am not the problem, there is no solution. Just a short note to say thank you. This episode was terrific. This saying was one that baffled me. Now it is clear as a bell. Well, I got to say thank you, Eric, because you're the one who helped me clarify it. Des responded to episode 256, which was titled Tom, his sister needed Al-Anon. Thank you, Tom. It has taken me 30 years to finally see clearly my contribution to the chaos. Your story gives me clarity and causes me to flash back to so many relationships similar to you and your sister. I read so many codependency books, but used what I learned to, quote, help others. I went to CODA meetings, and while comparing myself to them, I could not relate. I just thought, these people need to get a grip. The lenses I used all day were, how can I fix this person or situation? I saw myself as the responsible stand-in for God, who had obviously gone to sleep on his or her watch. It has taken me years of sitting on a meditation cushion to get it. Great show. Thank you both. Thanks, Des, and yeah, wonderful observations there, and thank you for sharing your experience. So Becky also picked a a song we didn't have time to introduce uh, because of our technical difficulties. The song is called Heal. It's by Tom O'Dell, and you can listen to it at therecovery.show slash 352. And just a few lyrics here that speak to the healing that I found, and I think Becky found, in our recovery work. Take my mind and take my pain, like an empty bottle takes the rain, and heal, 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 heal. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.